Are we in the biggest asset price bubble in history? To find out, we asked the investing expert who correctly recognized both the 2000 and 2008 bubbles and positioned his clients advantageously in advance. Here's what he thinks. It's unquestionable that we are in a uh, speculative bubble and, and in fact the largest one that we've had in US history. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make more informed decisions about building your wealth. Now, week after week on this program, we discuss the lofty prices of today's financial assets. By most metrics, they have never been more richly valued. Bears fear this is another asset bubble that will destructively implode. But bulls just smile and count their money as they continue to enjoy amazing returns in this market in nearly every asset class one can think of. So who's right? To address this, I'm thrilled to welcome my friend John Hussman to the program. John is one of the most analytically rigorous fund managers out there. He's widely respected on Wall Street, not just for correctly calling the busts of both the 2001.com and 2008 housing bubbles and positioning his clients advantageously in advance, but also for his brilliant commentary and charts that he publishes regularly. When it comes to recognizing asset bubbles, John is the expert. John, it's wonderful to have you join us again. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, John. Well, look, uh, I kick these videos off usually asking the same question of any expert, and you're not going to escape that. So uh, let's just start off at a high level. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? So um, this is a, a slightly tiered question because we're coming out of a pandemic where we have had um, the largest fiscal deficits uh, since, uh, since World War II. So last year we ran uh, a fiscal deficit of about 19% of GDP, and that was sufficient to support, um, you know, support economic activity and asset values. But based on that 19% of GDP fiscal deficit. Uh, and so we're coming at a point right now where the fiscal support is going away. It's a, we won't get to zero deficits, but we're, we're projected to get to uh, G, deficits as a size of GDP of about four or five percent versus 19. Um, and so the private economy has to take up the slack. And it's important to understand that, um, that the private recovery is not going to augment, but instead has to substitute for that 19% of GDP. So we are coming out of the pandemic. We do see the curve falling, even with uh, the Delta variant, um, you know, and uh, and the the very high reproductive rate that we've had there, um, we're at the point where we've got enough vaccination, enough uh, enough people who have had COVID and are are now uh, resistant to reinfection, or relatively so, uh, that that even if individuals get it, it's not going to spread, uh, you know, exponentially anymore. You know we've got we've got that uh, trajectory downward, and so by uh, about Christmas time, COVID will essentially be uh, have have essentially gone away unless we were to get another variant that has both as high a reproductive rate and you know can escape uh, immunity that that currently exists. So we're getting past the pandemic, we are going to see further economic uh, expansion. All of that has fed into asset prices, all of that, plus the Federal Reserve's creation of trillions of dollars of zero interest base money that someone has to hold. And so the combination of optimism about COVID ending, uh, and uh, the, the, the discomfort with holding zero interest money has led investors to speculate and speculate to a level that we have actually never seen before. It is now beyond 
1929. We are now beyond 2000 on the metrics that we find most uh, reliably associated with, uh, with actual subsequent returns. So whatever optimism is out there is embedded into the prices. And all of the FOMO and all of the TINA, you know, there is no alternative to zero interest. All of this has been driven into asset valuations. And so now we're in a situation where we need a private economic recovery and the fiscal deficit is going away. Now, here's the interesting part of this is that if you look at economic equilibrium, if one sector of the economy runs a deficit, you will find that other sectors of the economy in aggregate run a corresponding surplus, and it has to be equivalent, right? You know, because if if one uh, sector of the economy is consuming more than they produce, the other sectors of the economy, including foreigners, are producing more than they consume. It it must add up, right? So, what we saw last year as a 19% deficit in terms of government spending to GDP was also reflected in a corresponding surplus in the other three sectors, which are households, corporations, and foreigners, right? So, so we ran a record trade deficit, we ran record household savings, and we ran record corporate profits. The problem is that those deficits are going away and in aggregate, all three of those are going to narrow and they're going to narrow substantially. Uh, now combine that also with uh, people who have been uh, sort, of, sort of in you know, this pandemic uh, state and have kind of raised their reservation wage to go back to work. Uh, and what you're seeing is upward pressure on unit labor costs. And that's also going to feed into uh, shifting whatever surplus there is from corporations and toward households. Because the way we ran record profit margins uh, after, the, uh, after the global financial crisis was basically by wages staying relatively suppressed, unit labor costs being relatively suppressed, and the surpluses that would have gone to households instead went to corporate profits. That stuff is reversing. And so in my view, uh, I think the, the, one of the things that investors haven't um, properly considered is the likelihood that corporate profits will experience a much larger shortfall than they might anticipate. Uh, and we're at a point where we've got record multiples on record earnings. And if you contract both of those at the same time, you can get a very large uh, equity market decline. And I think that's probably what we're likely to see uh, certainly over the next uh, several years, but possibly even over the next single year. All right, John, uh, great context. Um, you, you hit a whole host of my questions just in the intro here. So we're off to a great start. Um, I, 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 I believe folks who listen can connect the dots and come to this conclusion, but just to make sure it's crystal clear, based on my intro, I just got to ask the question, sure. are we in a bubble? And if oh. so, how big and, uh, and how worried should we be? I did hear you use the words, you know, unprecedented, at least in terms of levels of speculation, comparing it to 29 and, and 2000. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So if you can just straight from the horse's mouth say, are we in a bubble? Yeah. I, I think there's, uh, it's unquestionable that we are in a uh, speculative bubble and, and in fact, the largest one that we've had in US history. Uh, my latest uh, market comment uh, refrains some of uh, Jeremy Grantham's views on this as well. And really what we're looking at here is, uh, is a situation where valuations have uh, gotten to the point where they're actually, and, and, and it's, it's actually spectacular. The, the valuation measures that we find most strongly correlated with subsequent market returns, looking back not only over recent decades, but all the way back to uh, the early 1900s, right? 
those valuation measures are now 50% higher than the valuations that were never seen before late last year, right? So we're, we're so far beyond um, what, what we've seen in other bubbles. Uh, and part of that is this, this uh, almost um, removal of a concept of a limit. People have shifted their attention from fundamentals, from valuations to trend, uh, the same way that they did uh, in uh, the, um, you know, in, in the late, uh, in 1929. If you read, for, for instance, uh, Ben Graham and David Dodd, uh, you know, their book, Security Analysis, uh, they talk about uh, why did investors shift their attention from valuations, from the level of valuations to the trend, the earnings trend, the price trend? Uh, and the answer is, uh, number one, because uh, the uh, promise of, of riches had become uh, extre extremely alluring. Uh, there was a belief that valuations didn't matter anymore. Uh, there was a uh, belief that, that if you looked at the past history of stocks, uh, you know, imagine going up uh, a roller coaster and looking behind you and you're, and you're looking behind you and all you see, hey, we've been going up this whole time. Well, people do that with passive investing. They say, wow, look at that. We've been going up. At the top of a bubble, that looks most glorious. The problem is you haven't taken the dive yet. And so the same way investors became convinced, and again, Graham and Dodd talked about this in 1932 after the collapse, uh, investors came to believe that stocks were um, the, the best vehicle for long-term investment, regardless of the price. It was only necessary to buy good stocks and let nature take her upward course. Uh, and Graham and Dodd said the results of such a doctrine could not fail to be tragic. And that's, I think, what we're seeing right now. So, so if you look at bubbles from an academic standpoint, um, really what a bubble is, is it is a dissociation between the expected return that is based on valuations and future cash flows and the expected return that's based on the extrapolation of price. A bubble has a certain logic to it. If the price is going up and investors believe that the price will go up and they act on those beliefs, well, the price will go up, right? But as that happens, as those expectations are being confirmed over and over by consecutively rising prices, there is a gap that opens up between the present discounted value, the reasonably present discounted value of future cash flows and the current price. And at some point that becomes extreme. And at some point it actually accelerates. And this is something Grantham talked about. You see an acceleration in the rate of ascent. And we certainly have seen that over the last year. And that acceleration of the rate of ascent is almost um, the way that people can rationalize being in an asset that may crash. Because as long as your expectation of the next return is sufficient, you may be willing to hold on to that asset, even though it's extraordinarily overpriced. And so at some point, that ends. Uh, and it historically has always ended. Uh, and it ends either because there's bad news or because the enthusiasm, as Grantham said, is just a little bit less than it was yesterday. And then a little bit less after that. And then you have to sell to somebody and the question is to whom, right? So, uh, so we are, I think, in a bubble from the standpoint of valuations. And I think we're also in a bubble from the standpoint of the way that academicians uh, would understand a bubble in terms of the, the dissociation between expectations-based extrapolation of price and the, the you know, sort of present discounted value uh, that would would actually provide investors with a with an acceptable long term rate of return. Great, and uh, you you mentioned I think briefly. I just want to make sure folks understand this. Um, a lot of what you just sort of pulled from there 
you have put in your most recent market comment, which just came out this morning. Uh, and most of my questions are geared around that. And, and also, John, as you talk when I can, um, like when you were talking about the, the, the extent of the overvaluation, 50% more than we've ever seen in history, you've got some wonderful charts in here. I'm going to superimpose those on the video when sure. you're talking about them. So feel free to reference any chart from that commentary going forward, and I'll do my best to put up the, uh, the chart with it. But um, yeah, and, and so thank you. And you know, I just can't help but listen to you sort of describing those classic attributions of, you know, manias or asset bubbles and, and can't help just thinking, yeah, that's, that's what it feels like today, right? That, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, the complete disregard for, uh, for valuation levels, um, the belief that this is the best asset ever, uh, and just the complete confidence that that's going to continue. And, and you know, we, we're young enough, at least, to have lived through the housing bubble and the dot-com bubble. So we've seen before where people can kind of rationalize away the risk when things are going really well. And it sounds like you're saying we're, we're in one of those uh, positions right now. I, I, I highlighted a lot of quotes here from Grantham that you had included in the uh, in your comment here, I'm, I'm not going to go through them just because people can read it uh, if they get the, the comment themselves and, and they should. Um, but all right, so we're in a bubble, at least as you think the academics define it and as you define it by looking at all you know your historical data. Sure. Um, let's get into timing. And I'm, I'm, I, I'll ask your forgiveness if, I, if I'm overly direct in some of these questions, feel free to you know answer them any way you want, but I'm trying to pull at threads that you mentioned in your comment. Um, you mentioned, uh, quote, uh, you expect the coming decade uh, yeah. and possibly even the next 12 months will be a disaster for the U.S. stock market. So, I do. All right. So let's let's dig into that, um, both in terms of the potential for this reckoning to happen within the next 12 months. And right. then you've got some charts about sort of the the depth of what you mean by disaster in terms of projected forward annual returns and stuff like that. So I'd love to bring sure. up some of those charts as well. So sure. football so, back to you, but it's going to get yeah. bad. It sounds like. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's great. Adam. Um, so uh, if you think about um, the way that uh, valuations work, the only way that you can get bubble valuations is by blowing through every lesser level of valuations. This is something we observed back in, uh, in, in the 90s. And so, so the real question was, what distinguishes um, an overvalued market that continues to get more overvalued from an overvalued market that drops like a rock? And looking across uh, the data, the answer was, um, for us anyway, uh, the, the psychology of investors as reflected in the uniformity of what we call market internals. Uh, and basically the way, that, the way this works is if investors have the speculative bit in their teeth, they tend to be indiscriminate about it. They tend to speculate on everything. And that's exactly what you're seeing right now. I mean, this is the, the uh, probably most extensive everything bubble uh, that, that we've had uh, in, in US history. Uh, so when investors are inclined to speculate, they tend to be indiscriminate about it. So you see all kinds of securities go up. You see stocks go up. You see you know, various sectors and industries go up. You see a lot of uniformity in, in the behavior. You see a lot of stocks hitting new highs. You see a lot of price volume sponsorship. You see uh, breadth is very strong. You see um, you know, stocks participating very well. Uh, you see credit doing well. You see low-grade credit doing well. Uh, you know, basically, basically, we extract a signal from thousands of individual stocks, and that's something that we've done for decades now, since since uh, the eighty. The, the, I'm sorry, since since the nineties. Um, and so, the fact the fact that stocks are overvalued has not historically been enough. Generally speaking, uh, the the greatest risk is when you've got overvaluation, basically a low risk premium, and you've got a loss of that uniformity, basically a shift toward risk aversion. And when you lose that speculative bit, when that speculative bit drops out of people's mouths at a very, very, very high level of valuation, that's where you get crashes. 
Um, I, will, I, I want to bring something up uh, in case you don't, because I don't. Uh, I try not to talk about the markets, and I try not to talk about uh, you know our successes in other bubbles and in other full cycles without talking about my failure in this one. Uh, please, and, please bring up whatever you think is going to be relevant. And, 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 and the reason is important because my fear is that people will hear, well, Husband thinks the market is overvalued. Husband thinks markets in a bubble, blah, 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 blah. And they will miss the reason why we had trouble in this bubble, which we've, which we've actually addressed. Valuations have not failed. There is still a very high relationship between the level of valuation that you start out with and the subsequent return that you attain. And you can find that uh, in, in the data, even, even in recent decades, right? If you do, for example, a scatter of valuations versus subsequent returns, you will see a very strong diagonal, especially for things like price to revenue, market capitalization to uh, corporate gross value added, uh, even market cap to, uh, to GDP. Uh, even um, you know the percentage of stocks uh, that that people have in their portfolios. You know, basically, stocks is a percentage of financial assets because all of those are really a numerator that is stocks and a denominator that's relatively smooth. And that's really what you need uh, to get you know that that strong inverse relationship between valuations and subsequent returns. Valuations have not failed. What's happened is that what was overvalue became even greater overvalued, became even greater overvalued. But the mapping hasn't changed, right? You know, I mean, stocks have underperformed uh, their historical norm since, since back in 2000. Why? Because stocks have been generally overvalued for that period and stocks started at a highly overvalued level. So the relationship between valuations and subsequent returns hasn't changed, hasn't been lost. Valuations are still an important tool. Market internals, what I was talking about before, you know, this uniformity has not failed. In fact, um, the, the entire total return of the S&P 500 from the 2000 peak to the current peak has been captured in periods where, the, where market internals were uniformly favorable. And the deep losses that we had in, in 2007, 2009, in last year, and in late uh, you know, 2018, all of those big declines have happened in the context of deteriorated and divergent market internals. So market internals haven't failed. What failed, and this is this is the source of my error. If you want to, if you want to say Hussman blew this cycle, Hussman was wrong. Hussman is a perma bear. Whatever you want to say, okay, I'm good with that, provided you get it right, right? Because to get it right is to understand that there is one difference between this bubble and every other cycle that we've had which is that in every other market cycle, there was a limit to speculation and you could measure it and you could measure it reliable. And we did this back in 2007. Uh, we, when we saw these syndromes of overvalued, overbought, overbullish conditions and they occurred together, the market would usually roll over and die. And once interest rates went to zero, investors lost their minds. They could not tolerate the, the concept of zero. As, as Walter Badgett wrote uh, more than 150 years ago, John Bull can stand many things, but he cannot stand interest rates of 2%, right? Uh, and so once we got zero interest rates, all of those reliable, limits, which frankly, we relied on. We became bearish when we saw them. All of those became useless again and again and again. And it didn't matter how extreme the market got. You had to wait until internals deteriorated before adopting a bearish position. Otherwise you were gonna get hammered. And we did, 
and so, so if you want to get the story right, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with, with admitting my errors. I'm, I, I want people to learn from those though, right? And in order to learn from that, you have to understand what went wrong. And what went wrong was when interest rates hit zero, people lost the concept of a limit. They shifted their attention to what am I making on as an alternative? Well, I'm making zero. And what they have done as a consequence is profound. They have driven stocks to a point where I would fully expect that over the next decade, possibly two, the total return of the S&P 500 will actually be close to or below zero. Uh, we saw, we, and, and, and frankly, we've seen this before. Uh, stocks underperformed treasury bills for long periods of time, you know, in, in, you know after the uh, 1929 peak, uh, from 1960s to 1982, from 2000 to 2013, We've had these very long periods where stocks have underperformed uh, treasury bills. If you want to measure from, you know, to, to market lows, one of the things you'll find is from May 1995 to March 2009. Remember what that period entailed. That, that was two separate bubbles and crashes. Yeah. May 95 to March 2009, stocks underperformed T-bills. And they did it for a reason. Right, because stocks got overvalued, and overvalued markets have this tendency to restore themselves. Not immediately, obviously. You know, you had two bubbles in between, but at the end of the day, you had a very long period where where investors hadn't done any better than T bills, and the Federal Reserve has essentially set that up right now. So, what I can tell you is valuations still matter profoundly. Market internals still matter profoundly. What you can't do anymore, and this is the lesson to learn from me, is assume there is a limit to speculative madness. I don't know what other word to attach to it. Uh, you have to be content to gauge whether those speculative uh, impulses of investors are present or absent. And that's what we do with internals. So, uh, so, so really for, for us, uh, one of the big risks here is not only do we have extraordinary valuations, but we also have divergent internals. And so that sets up uh, a kind of a trapdoor situation. And then you add in this sectoral problem, this sectoral deficit problem where, where these, these massive fiscal deficits are going away. So you know, without question, that if those fiscal deficits go away, the surpluses of those other three sectors, households, corporations, or foreign, you know, foreigners will shrink. Uh, the, the likelihood is that a lot of that comes out of uh, corporate profits. Uh, if you look at the amount of subsidy that was, was provided to US corporations, and if you look at the, the upward pressure on uh, unit labor costs, which are now outstripping inflation, uh, you you get you get a sense that there is some profit margin uh, pressure likely in you know in in the coming year as those deficits come off and as those unit labor costs remain high, and that combination of factors is why we 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 should at least be aware of the possibility that, that a, a, a fairly striking resolution may come over the next year. For me, I don't actually need to make forecasts. Our, our discipline doesn't rely on forecasts. Our, our discipline is to respond to observable factors, valuations, market internals, you know, other factors like that, uh, and, and adjust our portfolios accordingly based on what we observe. Uh, so, you know, if internals improve here, my immediate uh, you know, concerns may be allayed to some extent. My longer term concerns won't because at the end of the day, these extreme valuations uh, simply imply poor long-term returns. And, and, and that's just arithmetic. 
All right. Um, so great, John. Um, so many questions coming out of that. And I want to stay in the details about sort of what you see happening, but I want to jump up to the real high level for a moment. Sure. So you talked about your formula, um, where perhaps it went wrong, if you will, um, was uh, you had two variables that behaved exactly as you expected them to. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it a formula as much as a discipline, but yeah. I, okay. Um, but then the third factor, um, which was limits, right? You, you basically had the Fed come in and remove the limits by driving interest rates, you know, down yeah. to zero, making money basically free, um, and, and punishing everybody for for you know trying to stay in any sort of safe uh, investment uh, and right. and you know pushing the price of everything to the moon. Um, so, I mean, that, that was a real exogenous. Uh, development. Um, I'm not going to fault you necessarily for for not uh, you know, predicting that impact. I'm okay with that. But, but so my question though is, um, you know, you, you you talk about what investors did in response to that, um, and in many ways, all they were doing was just responding to the you know the landscape of incentives that the Fed you know presented them with. So. What are your thoughts on the Fed? Um, whether it's you know the culpability it has in this story, you know, was it did it have no other choice? Um, the, the Fed seems to be the central reason for why the game changed there, and we now have these, you know, record levels of speculation and your concerns about how things are going to end up. So, what are your thoughts on the Federal Reserve's role here? Yeah, I, I, I view the Fed as as profoundly culpable uh, and and dogmatic and reckless. Uh, frankly, um, here's here's how this this yield seeking stuff works. Uh, think back to uh, the decline that we had after the tech bubble. Uh, you know, markets dropped. You know, dropped about fifty percent. The Nasdaq one hundred uh, dropped about eighty three percent, and we had kind of a washout there. In response, uh, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates, but then. In 2003, Greenspan decided to go the extra mile and he dropped interest rates to 1%. Uh, and I started writing about this back then. The, the, the problem with, with 1% is that you kicked in Badgett's concerns, is that once you drop interest rates too low, you trigger yield-seeking speculation. And so investors looked around and they said, well, geez, I can't live on 1%. Where am I going to get a pickup in yield? And they found that pickup in mortgage securities. Uh, now, you know, it, even better than that, mortgage securities had always been safe. You had never had a housing bust in the U.S. And so people's perception was that these things can't really go down. You're just getting this extra yield for free. And so there was this massive shift of interest into mortgage securities. The problem is that... If you've got the demand, you've got to supply it. And, and Wall Street looked around and said, well, we've got this opportunity to create more product. Well, how do you create more product? You have to make more loans. And so Wall Street took that money and it lent it to anyone with a pulse and caused uh, what, what um, Grantham described as a three sigma 100 year event uh, in the housing market, this housing bubble. Uh, Bernanke didn't care. Uh, Yellen, uh, when asked whether it was the central bank's role to, uh, to address it, uh, her response was, uh, in, in the simplest possible form, no, no, and no. Uh, and so what, <laughs> so yes, the Fed was culpable for the global financial crisis. It caused the yield-seeking bubble that provoked investor demand for mortgage securities, Wall Street supply of mortgage securities, enormous amounts of lending, housing bubble, global financial collapse, right? Did they learn from that? No, they did not. Uh, and, and this is a problem also because, uh, you know, my, my kind of intellectual pedigree is, is you know, uh, uh, my dissertation advisors at Stanford were, um, Tom Sargent, who is kind of the father of rational expectations, uh, Ronald McKinnon, who, uh, who tried to convince 
the uh, Japanese central bank not to uh, pursue zero interest rates. He was he was uh, one of one of the uh, thinkers who came up with this idea of financial repression, uh, where you drive interest rates too low and you create all kinds of economic problems. Uh, unfortunately, they listened to Ben Bernanke instead and got. 30 years of, of nothing burger from it and, and uh, you know, and enormous amounts of volatility. The stock market is still down from, <laughs> from where it was in 90. Yeah, um, hard to believe, so, but very true. Yeah, well, this is, this is what happens. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who, uh, you know, is, is also a Nobel laureate in uh, information economics, uh, it, it run, uh, I, I'm sorry, um, and uh, John Taylor, who uh, was uh, the, the formulator of the Taylor Rule, uh, and talked a lot about, and still does talk a lot about, systematic monetary policy, rules-based monetary policy. If you look at the relationship between the Fed's policy variables and subsequent economic outcomes, you can ask a question. You can say, all right, well, let me take a bunch of non-monetary variables, for example, lagged GDP and GDP growth, uh, lagged employment, lagged unemployment, you know, rates, you know, and so forth, uh, output gap, um, you know, lagged uh, inflation. If you if you take uh, variables that are that are outside of the Fed's policy tools, and you run a regression and you try and project subsequent output, inflation, employment. And then you say, well, yeah, but I can do better. Let me take these monetary variables, which, which we imagine should have an effect, right? If they, if, they, if they didn't have an effect, then they wouldn't improve the forecast. Well, guess what? They don't. The projections that you get for GDP for, uh, and, and for employment are almost identical regardless of whether you include monetary policy variables. So monetary base, uh, federal funds rate, discount rate, include those variables, you don't improve the projection. And that's another way of saying that, that if monetary policy matters, it matters only by the systematic component, the component of monetary policy that's correlated with real economic variables, with other non-monetary stuff, the activist component has no benefit. And you can show that. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of what we call Granger causality. Now, you can, you can probably get try an F-test that, that you'll get a significant F-test. But in terms of effect size, in terms of whether, whether that effect is economically meaningful, the answer is it is not. And yet, and, and frankly, if you, if you look at, uh, for example, any version you want of the Phillips curve, plot inflation versus unemployment, plot lagged inflation versus subsequent unemployment, plot uh, unemployment versus subsequent inflation, you will not find a Phillips curve in the data because Phillips in 1959 wrote a completely different paper. He wrote a paper that related unemployment to wage inflation during a period where Britain was largely on the gold standard. And so it was real wage inflation. And what Phillips found, what we call the Phillips curve is actually a relationship between the rate of unemployment and the rate of real wage inflation. In other words, if unemployment is high, you know, and, and there are a lot of workers who are, who are looking for jobs, Wages don't grow relative to other prices. If unemployment is quite low, wages do grow, right? Relative to other prices. That's what the Phillips curve gauges. It gauges unemployment versus real wage inflation. But the dogmatists at the Federal Reserve have essentially twisted that relationship into, into a belief that there's some a regulatable trade-off between inflation and unemployment. And, and it's like, it, it's as if they're trying to spit 
seeds, watermelon seeds into a can and say, well, we got to get the unemployment rate lower, so let's spit more seeds in here. It doesn't have any effect. And yet what it does have an effect on is speculation. And it has a profound effect on speculation. So yeah, uh, long, long answer to a short question. I do believe that the Federal Reserve is culpable uh, when this bubble uh, collapses, which I believe it will. I believe that the Federal Reserve uh, will have the blame. I believe that what they will do is, is uh, intervene in ways that eventually convince people that, that they have saved the economy rather than destroyed it, that they've saved the markets rather than set investors up for massive losses. And uh, you know they, they tend to walk away from these not only blameless, but also with this this aura that they have saved the day. Yeah, it John, didn't you see they, they saved the world after the great global financial crisis, right? Yeah. It was on yeah, Time yeah. Magazine. You didn't see that? <laughs> I did see that. <laughs> you didn't get the memo? I did, I did see that. Yeah, no, we've, we've talked about some of this. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. It's it's the arsonist who, uh, you know, gets patted on the back as the fireman to come yeah. put out the uh, the fire that he started, yeah. right? And as you were saying, to, to butcher the analogy, even their fire hose does the wrong thing, right? You said it's actually ineffectual at yeah, the mandate exactly. that they claim to serve, and yeah, it actually exacerbates propane. speculation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's basically, yeah, <laughs> it shoots out <laughs> propane on the flames. All right. Um, and you answered the, the follow-up question I was going to ask, which is, um, sounds like you think they share a lot of the blame. Do you have any reason to be you know, optimistic the Fed might chart a better course going forward? I, I think you already answered that, which sounds like no, not at all. Um, all right, well, look. Um, they have not learned in the 170 years since since Badgett rode Lombard Street. I don't think they're going to start now. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, um, okay. Well, okay, that's the high level. Let's get back down into the weeds here. There's a number of questions I know viewers are, are real interested to answer, uh, hear you address here. Um, uh, and, and I want to get eventually to, you know, sort of with this kind of forecast, if you have any advice for prudent investors that are looking not to become roadkill, you know, in the reckoning that you see coming, I, I want to get there. But, but very quickly beforehand, um, I'm going to put up two charts here. Um, I'll see if I can do them side by side or one after the other. But um, one's your scatter plot here, uh, basically showing uh, that you this chart is projecting actual uh, or sorry, 12 uh, uh, year nominal annual returns uh, of about negative 6% going forward. This is that big scatter plot. And then yeah. um, there's the, uh, the Hussman equity risk premium model or the MAPE um, uh, mm -hmm. mapped here by, again, actual subsequent 12 year returns. This one's projecting negative 8% returns over the next 12 years. Can Relative. you understand the difference between the two? Yeah, relative to bonds, right? Because there's because bond yields are about you know are are, are positive. So I ah, so, got it. That second one yeah. is comparing the market to the stock market to, to bond. Return. Yeah. See, there's so there's this there's this notion that that low interest rates justify high valuations. Well, you you have to understand what people are actually saying there, right? You know, so so let's let's. I, I always have a calculator nearby. I didn't expect to use it, but here we are. Um, so, so let's say that uh, that I've got a security that is going to pay $100 a decade from now. Um, and I want to get, let's say, a 6% annual return. Well, I can go 1.06 raised to the 10th, one over times... 100. And, and, and I can say, well, you know, for that return, I would pay 55.80 for that. Now, if I'm willing to get uh, a return of only 2% annually, I'll be willing to pay more than 55.80. I'll be able to pay, I'll be willing to pay $82. If I'm willing to get a zero return, I'll be willing to pay $100 for that security today for $100 10 years from now. If I'm willing to accept a negative return, I'll, I'll pay a price today over $100 to get $100 10 years from now. That's the way valuations work. The higher the rate of return you are going to bargain for, the lower the price you have to pay. So when people say low interest rates justify higher prices, what they're really saying 
is low interest rates justify low returns on stocks, right? That's all they're saying. So to say, well, interest rates are at record lows, therefore these record high valuations are okay, is identical to saying interest rates are at record lows and therefore the expected return on stocks should also be at record lows. Now that's not what people actually are thinking. They're thinking, well, no, justify means that I'm gonna be okay, that I'm gonna earn normal returns. Oh, no, you're not. You would have to have valuations about 70% below where they are right now in order for stocks to be at levels that have historically been consistent with historically normal equity returns of about 10%. And so, so when you look at that, that curve, what you're really seeing there is, is not so much a projection, but a relationship. It's a relationship between current valuations, starting valuations, and subsequent returns. Now, the level that we're at historically would normally be associated with expected returns of about 6% negative annually over a decade. Now, you'll also notice in that scatter that there are some errors, right? You know, there's, there's, there's a, a cloud of points. It's not just a straight line. The problem is that even if you look at that cloud, even if you had one of the largest errors in history and, and actual returns are, are well above where you would expect them, you're still likely to get about zero. And we can actually figure that out another way. We can say, all right, well, right now, market cap to GVA is about 3.5. The 2000 high, right? The, the highest level that you had ever gotten before last year was 2.4, right? So, well, what happens if we only touch 2.4 a decade from now? Well, do the math, right? So you've got, 2.4 divided by 3.5, uh, raise it to the 0.1. So you know, uh, you know, uh, tenth, uh, basically, basically to the one tenth, um, and you get uh, a lovely 0.96. Right, that's a capital loss of about four percent annually. Now, here's the interesting thing. You know, nominal GDP. S&P 500 revenues, gross value added of US corporations over the last 20 years has averaged about 4%. So take that 0.96, multiply it by 1.04, and you get uh, about what your capital gain is gonna be, even with growth, but just assuming that we get to that 2000 valuation a decade from now, no lower, not historical norms by any means, just no more overvalued or no less overvalued than we were at the 2000 top. And the number you get is 1.00. Uh, and that basically puts the stock market today at the same level the stock market is 10 years from now. From now, right? yeah. So, so you basically get no capital gain at all, even if we just do that. Uh, now you say, well, what happens if we get inflation? You know, we'll, you know, we get faster growth. Well, the tricky part there is that if you look at the data again, if you look at the annual rate of GDP growth over a, over a given decade, and then you ask where were treasury bond yields at the end of that same decade, what you'll find is an upward slope. And you'll find it's a very, very good fit. Right? So basically, the higher the nominal growth rate over a decade, the higher the level of interest rates at the end of that decade. Right? You know, partially inflation, partially economic growth, doesn't matter. If you look at, if you look at the nominal GDP growth rate, uh, you'll see that upward slope. And basically what that says is that it doesn't matter whether we get faster growth by real economic growth or by inflation. If we do, you can pretty much bet that interest rates are likely to be higher and stock valuations are likely to be lower than they are right now. So the faster growth will get offset by a contraction in valuations. Um, and so, you know, if you look 
for example, over the last uh, over the last century, and you ask the question, well, what has happened with valuations if 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 growth rates have been like ten percent annually? If if you've if you've had you know really fast nominal growth, uh, or if you've had inflation over four percent, either way, you've ended those periods with valuations below, on average, um, their historical norms, and typically about 30% below their historical norms. And right now we're about 3.6 times those norms. So it's, it's gonna be very difficult to escape the consequences of the valuations that the Fed's um, you know, yield-seeking bubble have produced. It's, it's just, an unfortunate situation and someone has to hold the back. Yeah. All right. Well, let me, let me, let me restate the wonderful math you just did there, John, which is um, it looks like you are looking ahead at all the data and saying, it looks like we have basically a lost decade ahead of us, right? Where either, um, and this is probably the best case scenario, <laughs> valuations. Uh, if, if, if you get, you get a lost decade if we limit the contraction in valuations to the 2000 height. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in best case scenario, we just right. the, the current valuations don't go anywhere for a decade. Right. Yeah. And, and this kind of yeah. you know, these kind of catch up to fair value over time. Um, or um, we have a, just a really big correction in there or, or you know, probably more likely real you know, ping ponging around. Yeah. It, but, oh, we'll but, definitely but, do that. We'll definitely yeah, go yeah. nowhere in an interesting way. Yeah, and, and, and I want to let you I want you run on that. But I just want to note one thing that you said here. So you've said. Um, I expect the coming decade and uh, sorry, uh, most of the damage will come from the top, resulting mm -hmm. in market conditions that are reasonably investable within a year or two. Sure. So kind of where I'm going here is two things. Um, one is I read that and I sort of it sounds a little bit like Jeremy Grantham, which says, hey, you know, when we look at history, when we've seen these conditions, we usually see a market correction of 50 percent plus coming sometime soon. Yep. So I hear you saying, hey, look, there's pretty good possibility of a large market correction. Mm -hmm. But then I hear you saying, but there might actually be a period not too long after that where we can look at some green shoots and we can start to deploy oh, yeah. capital. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So so it's it's really, this is, and this is a really good question because it's, it's an important point for investors to understand. Our interview with John continues over in part two, but before you go watch it, keep listening for just another minute. A lot of this interview is built around the analysis and John's latest market comment publication, which he has kindly agreed to let us offer to you here now for free. To get it, simply go to Wealthion.com Hussman. It's packed with excellent charts and analysis that build on the conversation that John and I are having here. And once you've done that, to watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you do, please don't forget to support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it if you haven't already. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with John Hussman.